Okay. Uh, thank you, Alice. Um, the next paper uh, comes from... Now, we are starting with the 19th of November, 1929, with the auction of Mitzi Hofteufel's belongings and estate. And when you look for Mitzi Hofteufel, you find nothing. She's not mentioned in any books or dictionaries, encyclopedias. There's nothing known about her life. And looking at a person's um, estate, of course, is the story of her life, you know, in objects. It makes it very difficult to, to guess what this life was about if you know nothing about her life. Um, this is a portrait of her, um, which was the most expensive item among about 195 pieces. Um, this is by John Quincy, and it was actually shown in various exhibitions in Vienna and even Berlin. And the whole question arises, why can it be that such an unknown person um, has portraits painted of her? And um, what, what about this? And I tried to look into the secret, and I found more things. Um, among the things that she owned, and somehow while I'm looking at the presentation, all the kind of titles disappeared, so I really have to improvise. This is um, a leader. And we also find um, um, French furniture for her bedroom, which was very, very common. And the bedroom will be one of the focal points of this paper within the country house. Um, and we'll find um, all sorts of images. We find about 12 different types of Japanese items, um, which was also fashionable at the time, from Klimt to others. So basically, what I'm getting at is that the collections, as personal as they are, still reflect the kind of general taste, which was shaped very much by the Kunsthistorische Museum and the Belvedere, for instance. So here we find images of her. So some images are known. And Mitzi Hofteufel makes her really like a kind of schnitzler kind of character, kind of süße Mädel, in a way. She looks almost um, a little bit um, plump um, and kind of simple but we find out more about her in a minute. So here we find um, you know, one of these kind of boulevard um, um, periodicals of the time, where we find her here, and I think this is her as well. Yeah. And this on the left is an extremely interesting portrait. It was done, uh, done by Madame Dora, who was a Jewish photographer, and that in itself is an extremely fascinating topic to think about how portraiture was done and how the Jewishness came into it, and even you know, um, done by a woman taking photographs and images of other women. So, and here we have two um, portraits done, one by Emil Czech on the right, and this one by John Quincy, which is very well known um, and uh, shown in the Hagenbund um, exhibition, for example. All at around, um, from 19 to around 19 uh, to 1907. So we're looking at the early 20th century. And then I found lot number 12. John Quincy Adams, this is this, and um, and another one which actually says, which we don't see right now, um, it says, Auf der Höhe, Glocknitz. And that's a real giveaway, because this is what this lecture is about. It is a country house in the Semmering area of Austria, which is about an hour away from Vienna. And here you see from 1854, this is when the um, Südbahn first started going to Glocknitz. And the Südbahn was financed by the Rothschild family. And then, in about 10 years later, in 1954, you have the Semmeringbahn, which was actually the first alpine 
railway station um, and railway uh, track in, 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 in Europe. And that completely changed the landscape and is now a, a part of the UNESCO World Heritage. You see here there are about 100 bridges and viaducts um, that really totally changed the landscape visually, but also by introducing all sorts of travel, for instance. So we are looking at an area of the Jewish country house when lots of building activities started by others as well, by the aristocracy, by particularly um, actors and actresses and um, Jewish entrepreneurs. So these are two palaces in this kind of simmering area, and we are talking about the late 19th century. On the left, we see the Villa Wartholz, which used to belong to the Archduke Karl Ludwig, uh, the brother of the Emperor Francis Joseph. And here, this was actually higher above, you see um, Baron Rothschild's castle, which was, was about 10 times more expensive than the Emperor's palace. And you can guess that this didn't go over very well. Um, so there are many, many different accounts what happened. So a Rothschild, he built typically in the French style, which is a feature you know, also of the Guru Child, the French style, which is also characteristic of um, you know, American millionaires um, in the um, uh, gilded Age, and I, I would like to emphasize the term Gilded Age. It's not golden, but it suggests that there's the gold, the facade over something which is not real. Yes, at the time of the Nouveau Riche. Um, and um, so he spent about 10 years building the spending the fortune, ten, uh, 2 million uh, golden and 10 times more than the emperor, and then he just gave it away. So why would he do that? Um, and so there are different accounts. One is um, where his um, employee wrote a little booklet and he said his favorite sister came from Watson Manor and he said what that's it oh that's nothing I mean Watson that's something but that is nothing and he was you know very very disappointed a another version was that um, people didn't really like a Jew around having a having a castle which is even bigger and having daring to have a castle that is bigger than um, than that of the imperial family and so we have often talked about this kind of taintedness and aspects of this. But you know, we mustn't forget that there were luxury laws. They didn't only exist in the Middle Ages, but sometimes they were still kind of accept, you know, uh, in people's minds in the 18th century, in up to about 1850. So that basically, with a certain rank, you can't do certain things. And in a way, Jewish um, um, entrepreneurs were in a similar situation to um, courtesans who lived the, the royal lifestyle, but they were not of royal or aristocratic blood. And people were unforgiving about this. So somehow the idea, only when you came from a certain family, you can do certain things. You can live in a certain way. You can have a certain lifestyle. was very, very prominent. So um, apparently, in Rothschild, he had um, a, a wonderful greenhouses also at the Hohe Warte in Vienna. And, um, and they were very much admired. And he had some in, in Reichenau as well. And when he, were, when he was away, the emperor came to look at them. And that was extremely insulting, that someone came when the actually lord of the manor wasn't around. And so there was all sorts of things going on. People made his life miserable. And then he just gave it away to the emperor as a present. And he originally wanted to, um, to turn it into a sanatorium maybe to kind of you know ruin the emperor's kind of life there you know have all the kind of sick people around or maybe he was just kind and he thought um, he was charitable and then people even found something bad there we don't know the truth of the story i've, I've read uh, the uh, archduke's um, 
diary, but which was written with the, with the anticipation of being published. So I can't really know how truthful that is. I have not found the evidence, but he gave it away. And that's what is the connection with my title. This world was temporary. It wasn't there to last. It was a very short period. And um, there are um, also combinations between Lord Rothschild, Baron Rothschild, and um, Josef Kranz, to whom I shall come later. So this is him. So we are, you know, especially with Karl Schorske's publication, we are talking about Jewish culture at the turn of the century in, um, in, in, in relation with modernism. What I'm looking at is a culture, a Jewish culture, a secular Jewish culture that has nothing to do with modernism. It was, in a way, a conservative culture. And both Baron Rothschild and um, Dr. Kranz were secular. So now this, again, brings us back to Glocknitz, where I started, you know, Auf der Höhe in Glocknitz. <coughs> this is actually the villa Auf der Höhe in Glocknitz. This tiny little picture where no image was taken from Mitzi Hofteufel's um, um, estate, an auction at the Dorotheum Museum, uh, auction house, the most famous auction house in, in Austria at the time. This was the villa Auf der Höhe, and it belonged to Dr. Josef Kranz, who was a notorious person. He was said to be the most powerful man with the emperor at the time. He came from nowhere. He was born in the 1860s um, in Auschwitz. He was the son of a rabbi, came to Vienna. He was a ruthless, scrupulous person. He was very ambitious. He married his boss's daughter uh, and then um, got tired of her. They had a son. He died, and he quickly moved on to have all sorts of affairs, particularly with actresses. And actually, at the time that... Uh, um, um, the Rothschild Castle was built in 1884. This is what, when Mitzi Hofteufel was born. So there are all sorts of really, really funny kind of strange parallels. So this is kind of um, more like an English um, style of contemporary country house. Um, and I'll have the only image, and I should say something. You know, it's impossible to find any portrait of Josef Kranz, but I managed to find one in very kind of strange yeah. circumstances. I, I used to summer in Gustav Klimt's summer villa, and the owner um, had inherited this house in, in, a, in a strange way. And she thought, I'm, I'm quite all right, but my problem was that I didn't drink. Nevertheless, she showed me this box and where I found all sorts of secrets, including Emilie Flöger's cuts for her wonderful reform dresses. And I found the image of um, Josef Kranz, the only one that is known to me. And now, if you look at this image, I mean, it's so telling. I mean, I was really, really excited about this find. So here, he is depicted in his palace in Vienna, in the Palais Kranz. And if you look at his history, the place where he actually resided in Vienna is very telling, because it is, although it's secular, it is Jewish. He started out in the second district, where most poor Jewish people lived. Then he moved towards the fourth district after he had enough money, and he built a palace where also the Rothschild Palace uh, uh, was, and a few other Jewish people had built their new palaces. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't good enough. He had to go and have a palace close to the kind of Duke of Liechtenstein. And this is then this palace um, that he bought in the early 20th century, Liechtensteinstraße 53 to 55. And um, so all of the interiors are very, very traditional. And that is the question. If someone has nothing and suddenly becomes very rich, what kind of style would he choose? And well, the answer in this case is he would emulate the aristocracy. His mm -hmm. style would be very conservative. But with the exception of a few things, his mistress's bedroom that was, <laughs> was modern, and he actually hired 
a contemporary architect. And once you look at this complicated history, you find a network of all of these people being of Jewish origin, but secular. But they were recognizable as Jewish, and they knew who was Jewish, and they, and they were in touch with each other. And he, now how did he want to be portrayed? So he actually, if you look carefully, he's holding a small item in his hand. And I think he wanted to be de shown as a great connoisseur, as an art collector, as someone who is a patron of the arts. Because in the back, you know, you have the Baroque um, um, chest of drawers, but in the back you have this kind of obscure drawing by Richard Teschner, who was called the magician of Gersthof at the time. And um, he actually had never done interior design, but he, he did some design for Josef Kranz. And, um, you know, if you look at his, I don't know whether you're familiar with his work, he's not very well known outside of Austria, but he had kind of, he was influenced by the kind of Prague symbolism, um, and he had weird monster kind of figurines, and he was interested in Javanese um, um, puppets, and, um, and also in, in the occult. And you'll find a lot of images that are more pornographic than um, kind of erotic and being rather explicit. So, and that brings us to the question of how was it with entertaining? Because sh surely some of these paintings must have been very shocking. And we know from personal reports that basically everyone who came to visit Dr. Josef Kranz was dependent on him somehow. So this was, um, and here we find an invitation by Richard Teschner, and you see invitation to view um, the murals by Richard Teschner. So clearly the house was a stage where you would showcase your taste and showcase what you had. Now, these were some of the women that he had, the three most important kind of mistresses. And usually he liked um, actresses. This is Mitzi Hofteufel again on the far left. And then he made the mistake. He fell in love with an intellectual. That was not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> she actually used his money to finance the Soviet <laughs> communist <laughs> newspaper. And then it was even worse. I mean, she made him hire her lover, who was um, Bly, the um, writer, and he didn't know about it. So still, he thought everyone admired him because he had this young, young, beautiful women, and he was a patron of the arts. But everybody in Vienna was laughing at him. Franz Werfel, Musil, they were all writing about him. And if you look at Gina Kaus, that was her name, she was born as Sirna, and her father was a Jewish moneylender. They lived in a rather poorer part of Vienna. And her half-sister was Stephanie von Hohenlohe Schillingsfürst, the Duchess, um, Adolf Hitler's friend, his dear princess, and a Nazi spy. So it's a really, really kind of obscure kind of family history if you look at that. And I think from the picture, I've chosen that in particular, because you see somehow like a very kind of artistic type of gown. And you see that art and lifestyle all intermingles in the case of Josef Franz. And there was hardly a difference between his city palace and the country house that he had. So he insisted when he went out and someone didn't have enough money that he bought the clothes for them because he didn't want to be shown in public with anybody who wouldn't be flamboyant. And um, so, and, you know, he, she, she wrote this wonderful diary about it in her memoirs. She later emigrated to the U.S. and she, she did very well, actually, not like um, many others. She, um, she was a calculating woman, clearly, and um, um, she wrote film scripts, and um, she kind of was mocking him as well. So she was leading the life you know, of, a, of a rich lady in the palace, but then sneaked out to the coffee house to meet her communist friends and so on. So Karl Kraus was rather amused. He really loved her. Um, and um, 
Um, yes, so um, this is Gina Kaus. And this is um, Lily um, that he married later. And all of them lived in the same bedroom and lived in the same house. And they're all kind of, the only kind of references that I know are from Gina Kaus because she described it. Um, and I show you the bedroom now, which is very different from his other taste. And you hear... Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hurrying up. So you see basically, <laughs> yeah, no, how the women uh, fulfilled his kind of role expectations. You know, it's the Susan Mädel, it's the Dienstmädchen, it's the servant, it's Venus and Fell, you know, um, from Sacham uh, Masoch, um, from Lily. And, you know, then it's the kind of what Peter Gay would call an alibi, where you use art, but really it's pornography and nothing else. And then the kind of mon mundane depiction of, of Lily. Um, this is the house. This is um, now we have on the right we have the Palais Kranz, and on the left we have the country house in Villa auf der Höhe. And if you look carefully, the ceiling looks very, very similar. And I think they were both done by Oskar Strinat uh, of Jewish origin and Obsieger. And if you look carefully, you see that these are also pornographic kind of depictions. It's a bit far, um, but uh, these are very explicit kind of scenes. So on, on the one hand, you have uh, the kind of very traditional and, and the Sheraton room. On the other hand, you have the kind of slightly um, um, commercial room. So and you, um, th these are his paintings. And this is just the bedroom Then I come to an end because I really wanted to show you the bedroom for all the mistresses, done by Richard Teschner and later uh, changed a little bit by, um, um, by Strinat. So Gina Kaus complained about this. Uh, about this top because she couldn't lie in bed and smoke a cigarette because it was a frame. Um, and, uh, you know, certain things were also influenced by the time, by the magazines at the time, because it was popular to have these kind of bed spreads with a frame. I've seen a few things. You see kind of almost like a fairy tale, weird kind of, this is here, the goddess of sleep. This is on top of the bed. And then I show you some more items of the bedroom quickly because it's so fascinating. On the one hand, there's love. On the other hand, you know, to remind the mistresses where the money comes from, it's the mountain of work. Yeah. So, um, so um, yeah. And uh, in the end, um, he lost it all. And there was a famous process in 1917 where, he, where basically is like a Dreyfus case. I don't think people have really written about it, but in my mind, this is a Dreyfus case. He lost everything. He was a, uh, the, the, the scapegoat um, uh, for someone who had profited from the war, and really he didn't care much about it. He just sold beer to the front because he was friends with the minister, and he had asked for beer, and that was the end of him, and um, the palace was sold, and... Um, the um, country house as well. And then suddenly um, his wife, um, who really loved him, who had been in the background all his time, came back and nursed him till he died. And that was the end. <laughs> and the mistresses then disappeared and had their other lives. <laughs> it was temporary. Yeah. Thank you.